Thank you for listening to The Digital Backpack. This episode was first published on March 3rd of 2015, when the podcast was called My Blend Stories. This is My Blend Stories, and I'm Jeff Gerlach. Chris Stanley is a 21st century teacher with Fraser Public Schools. This is an interesting position that the district has created, part instructional coach and part classroom teacher. Primarily, he supports secondary-level staff and students in integrating technology to enhance learning. In fact, currently, he's working exclusively in this capacity. Yet, as recently as last semester, he was also teaching two ELA classes at Fraser High School, a content area he has taught since 2008. We chatted about personalized learning strategies that strike a balance between proactive and reactive differentiation, which then led us to talk about the power of structuring learning around inquiry and his early impressions of using a competency-based learning approach with his students. This is his story. Hey, Chris. How's the cold day going? Oh, man. We had... Can you hear me okay? I can hear you good. Okay, perfect. I'm doing this from my phone. I was doing it from my computer before. Um, we had a couple days off at the beginning of the week, and then we went back on Wednesday, and then we got two more days. So kind of felt like we had a whole week off. Yeah. So not too bad. Not too bad. So just Wednesday? Yeah, just went to work on Wednesday. Wow. Right in the middle of the week. Right. And it was sweatpants day on Wednesday. Even so, better. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So I want to tell you that my error the last time had to do with checking Camtasia because I was using Camtasia to record the audio. Right. And Camtasia, like, I mean, since it does video too, it just gives you a counter that it's going, but it doesn't really tell you what it's actually recording while it's doing it. Okay. And I had checked before that it was recording system audio because that would mean that it was recording our conversation. Sure. But in my doing my due diligence to check to make sure it was recording system audio, I checked the box again to turn it off. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So yeah, what that prompted me to do is to find a more uh, idiot-proof solution, right? And <laughs> and so I found this uh, uh, Emolto call recorder for Skype, which automatically starts as soon as the call starts. Oh, so it just starts record. It's like a add-on for Skype. Yeah, it just works perfectly. I think it probably works through like an API connection or or something, but sure. It recognizes when Skype is making a call. So right. it's got a really like basic interface, but hey, it does the job. Right. So just like measuring twice, cut once, it's record twice, check off the box twice or something. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Right. Uh, the only thing is every like 20 minutes it says, hey, are you still recording this conversation? Right. And, and, right. and it says you have 60 seconds to say yes or no. Right. So hopefully every 20 minutes I'll be looking at the screen. I think I got it set up to where it's going to it's gonna be good. <laughs> Please um, pay 25 cents <laughs> for a longer conversation. Yeah. But anyway, thanks again for yeah. – uh, I was talking um, – I was talking to – do you know Brandon, my coworker? 
I think so. Yeah. yeah. I, I think we've met. Yeah. So I was talking with Brandon and I was saying my conversation with Chris last time was so good. I kind of feel like, you know, Tenacious D. Sure. Yeah, the, of course. The, the, the song Tribute. The, yeah. So it's like this, this is going to be <laughs> the tribute to the greatest conversation I've ever had. It didn't actually sound anything like this conversation. Right. right. But this is in the spirit celebrating that conversation. So, so we'll see. I don't want to try to have the same exact conversation, but I'm sure that we can get back to capturing some of the good stuff that we talked yeah, about last Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see where it goes. Hey, you know what I was thinking about, though? I, can we just free flow here? Is yeah. Okay. Isn't it interesting that in 2015, we're at this place with technology that things are just so normal now? Like, okay, so so I'm talking to you via Skype, right? And in like 2006, that was incredible. You know, that you could actually talk to somebody over the internet with extremely clear audio. Uh, and then, you know, like FaceTime comes out and I can do a video conference via my phone. And I remember that blowing my mind. You yeah. Know, I was like, oh my gosh, it's the craziest thing. Now to me, it's just like, yeah, that's just what you do, you know? Right. And, and, and I don't know what needs to come out next for me to be that blown away. Cause I feel like everything else will just be sort of like an enhancement of what we already have. Yeah. Like, like better, better quality of what we're doing easier to do it. Yeah. Like, like I don't even know how impressed I would be with the floating car now, you know, like <laughs> back to the future floating car, because all that that really would do is just, it'd still get me to where I need to go probably within the same amount of time, but it just floats now. Right. Yeah, Stuff I would technology. Was... It, so we, uh, my wife and I went out uh, impromptu on Valentine's Day, okay. uh, which you know. Do you say impromptu because you want to be the cool guy? Like we don't normally do that sort of thing, but you know. Uh, we got a um, we got a three month old puppy right now. Okay. And so we've kind of been, we've kind of been homebodies. Yeah, I hear you, man. Uh, no, so legitimately, I was like, "Hey, let's go out," and this is not classy at all. Because I'm like, "Let's go to the bowling alley," because <laughs> sure. because I want to bowl. They've got a killer BLT there, babe. Yeah, I ended up having some sort of grinder or whatever. Yeah, and some mozzarella sticks. We'll share them. Yeah, and yeah. that's delicious. So right. so we we go in and we're like, a lot of times we bowl at the same time that we're eating. But we got real classy this time and and ate and you, first. And you used napkins as well. <laughs> yeah, and used napkins, sat down, did the whole civilized thing. Sure. So we we got done and we went over to the bowling alley side of it and it was an hour wait. And so we were like, well, an hour is an ungodly amount of time. Let's go find something else. So sure. we go to the movie theater and everything is sold out. Well, it's Valentine's Day and yep. we should have thought of that. And it's, you know, negative 100 degrees out. Everyone's miserable. So my wife is like, usually we Netflix everything. But yep. she says, I want to watch Guardians of the Galaxy. And obviously newer movie not going to be on Netflix or anything sure. like that. So she's like, let's just go over to the store and buy the Blu-ray. And I'm thinking, man, since we moved, I haven't gotten the Blu-ray player out. Right, right. I don't want to get the Blu-ray player out. Let's. <laughs> I'm just gonna buy it on Google Play. Yes, right. <laughs> and I got to I got to thinking this morning, like, what's the next format beyond a digital format? I own VHS that I will never play again. Oh, um, never. 
Yeah, and yeah, and that yeah. format shift has when you purchase a movie and you own it, you don't own a movie forever. You own it no. until the format shifts and you shift with it. Right. If I would have kept my VHS player, I it, obviously I could I could keep watching it forever or you know a converter or something like that. But I I got to thinking like now that there's not a physical format for it, what's the evolution of it? And I think that that's like someone playing their Betamax way back when was probably like, man, I don't know how they can improve on this. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Our paradigm is so so fixed despite the fact that we know that something is going to change with sure. it. That it's not going to be this way forever. Yeah, it, I, it is true. You know, it's interesting. I think even generations younger than us know that too. Yeah, there are things though that the younger generations though just won't tolerate, and having to repurchase Guardians of the Galaxy four different times—that's just unacceptable. So I think it's going to have to be catered towards something like that. But you've got these companies like we have to use Apple and Google as you know your your biggest ones that they almost have you for life, right? So I'm an Apple slappy. Um, I have Apple TV. So when I'm in your situation and I want to watch Guardians of the Galaxy, I purchase it on Apple TV. But now you have me for life almost because I can't switch to Google because Guardians of the Galaxy is on Apple TV. Right. So I'd have to repurchase it. And that's not good enough for me. So, yeah, I'm with you totally like Betamax guys. I'm sure that they did say because Laserdisc wasn't far behind it, was it? <laughs> We're getting into like the dark recesses of my childhood. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I remember my buddy had Blade Runner on Laserdisc. No way. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just the coolest thing ever. And I don't even know if I really realized that it was super crystal clear or, you know, whatever 1987's version of super crystal clear was. But I just remember thinking that it was cool because it was something I didn't have. I remember teachers wheeling in the cart yeah. and all right, kids today, we're <laughs> going to be watching a laser disc. And I couldn't tell you now what the heck we watched, but right. I remember this looked like a, a vinyl record coming out of the sleeve, except sure. it was shining and blinding me in the face. And I just right. thought, man, the future has arrived. Well, because we were tech nerds, too. We'd then probably tell people that right. we watched a Laserdisc in class. And, like, we were looking for specific things that make it that made it look different than a VHS. Yeah. And you'd be like, did you notice that? <laughs> yeah. Like, no. Yeah. I more vividly remember the first time I watched not a movie in HD, but sports in HD. Oh, yeah. Like the Seahawks. Like you saw their green. Yeah. And it, yeah. like you see little things that fundamentally change your because you saw a dimple on a dude's face. Right. It's like or sweat on their brow. It right. like changes the entire experience. <laughs> then you go back and you watch a standard definition. Anything. Yeah. Like I'm a hockey guy and watching YouTube clips from the 90s. Right. Is like ridiculous. And I feel horrible as a fan who used to be able to follow the puck yeah. in, in that standard. Now I'm like, man, I can't even watch this. Yeah, this is this is ridiculous. I want to see a clean Bob Probert fight. <laughs> right. I can't. Why couldn't Bob Probert exist <laughs> in the HD era? I need to see the darkness of that mouth of all the missing teeth. I need to see right. Ty Domi's face explode. Right. <laughs> 
That's it, man. That that's exactly. It. I don't know if anything will ever be good enough, though, because then you watch something now, you know, it, and then you know, kind of going back to what you were saying, you know, five years from now, I wonder if I'll be going. Yeah, right. What was this 1080p? You know, I mean, 4K is where it's at. 5K, 12K is where it's at now. Well, they got that Ultra HD that's kind of like, like, I can't tell the difference between. Right. But but it's also because I'm viewing it on devices that aren't capable of showing me what that pixel definition yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, what you said about, like, the Seahawks green being yeah. what it is and not really realizing that that was the Seahawks green. Yeah. Because you'd never been to a game in, in Seattle or wherever they had played right. before. Like, makes me realize how much we know without actually tangibly being able to touch or see with our own eyes. Exactly. Yes. And that's a very, if we're going to bring this back to. Uh, <laughs> I was what, trying to see if we could be like jazz musicians and just like let it flow into it. Well, it'll flow back into <laughs> it, it. But it's kind of like, so I did my master's at MSU in educational Go technology. Go green. Yep. And I never once stepped foot on campus for the entirety of the program. You can do a hybrid model, but I did a completely online version of the the master's program. Mm -hmm. And like I met my mentor teachers at a seminar or like I guess you'd call it a conference at MSU. The College of Ed puts one on. In November? Yeah, like an ed tech one. It was one of the best conferences I've ever been to. I agree. But anyway, like I was meeting people that I had developed these rich relationships with online and knew very well because of how effectively instructors communicate in those courses. Sure. Um, You know, I think I learned a lot of great things in that program, but I think I learned a lot of stuff just by how the program was structured and run as well. Like I was able to kind of see the the production value that went into it. And I don't know if every every person that goes through that program or or a program kind of experiences that as well. But when I met people face to face, it was two thoughts. It was, oh man, like they look different than I had <laughs> yeah, interpreted right. from their right. avatars, right? Their profile yeah, that pictures. That photo from you in Orlando twelve years ago, you don't look the same. Right. You know, and Obviously, you look different when, you know, you're moving, you're talking, and it's, you know, it's a face-to-face thing. But right. then also, I, I began to value, like, man, my perception of you is not far off because of how richly you were portrayed in this environment. Oh, that's interesting. It's like the two sides of everything. Like, you could you could look at it and be like, man, I see – you see all the differences, and you're like – Right. Yeah, it's really good to see you in person because I think this really richens my my perspective of who you really are. But sure. at the same time, you can look at it and say, man, I wasn't far off. Right. Let, let me ask you real quick, though. So so the courses that you took and your classmates, they, were you in the same class with those students because they made the same choice as you to not step foot onto campus? <sighs> a lot of busy people, right? Okay. And yeah. a lot of yeah. people – like I, I was in classes with uh, – Often in groups with – Dwayne was from Wyoming, and I remember his name because he was from Wyoming and it was easy. But, yeah. Um, and how many Dwaynes do you know? Right. And Sarah Pickles because Sarah Pickles is an amazing name. Uh, she, she, was in, um, she was in England 
so like a, a lot of people who you couldn't physically come to sure. campus, right? Sure. Right. Okay. So that makes sense. Here's okay. So if somebody, am I interrupting you? No. If so. somebody were to ask me, you know, how has technology really changed, you know, what you do in the classroom or just what you do on a day-to-day basis, I'd have to say it gives me more options to be convenient because of the fact that it's accessible. Now, and now I, want, I just want to take your master's experience, for example. Some people would totally disagree with you, Jeff. Some people would go, oh, you have to have the beauty of going to Michigan State University and walking along the Red Cedar River and seeing it in the fall and everything like that. And that's great. And so people have that option. If they want to, they can have that experience. Yeah. But there are other people that are like, no, listen, man, I'm busy. I really am. And especially when it comes to the grad school feel. Like my grad school was every Wednesday night I had to drive to a specific location, right? Yeah. If that were offered online to me, I would have taken that in a heartbeat because, you know, that then cuts out, what, an hour and a half of driving, you know, to and from. I'm still getting the same information, which I think a lot of people, you know, you have to convince sometimes, but you're still getting that same amount of information, whether it be online or whether it be in person, depends on how the instructor is running it, and you're getting your stuff done, you know, so to me, that's the most convenient thing possible for my structured life right now, you know. And, and that's what I love about technology and, and the different forms of classrooms that we have because, you know, e- each person is a different type of learner and we've got people that, you know, feel that they need that face-to-face instruction. And by all means, you can have that. You know, nobody's ever taken that away from you. If, if you do better, you know, because you're busy and you have other things that you'd like to do, then try out the online version too, because I, I, you can still glean a ton of information that way as well. Um, so I, I think it's an exciting time. I really do. I think that there's so many cool things happening and kind of going back to what we were talking about with our kids, they're not going to tolerate certain things, right? Like what we were saying with, you know, changing digital formats and everything like that. I think same goes for education. Same goes for knowing their different style of learning. You know, if a student is used to, you know, having all of their information online, because that's what, you know, we have at a, at a, in our building. You know, we have a, a learning management system. We're using Blackboard right now. And students are using that, you know, and all my information is there and all the material that they need for that specific day is going to be there. Now... If that's not the case, the student doesn't understand why. You know, what What do you mean your stuff isn't online? That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. You know, inaccessibility is something that, I mean, I, I bet you find yourself doing the same thing. If I don't have the, the option, sometimes I get to be a snob about that stuff. Oh, so I don't, too. oh, for sure. I don't know if I'm in the minority with it. I intentionally try to just like go with it because really – at the end of the day, it's about people and learning. So, right. like, I would hate for someone to really have a great thought and me not want to put in the extra effort just because it's not in a format that I think that they should have used, right? Right. But, yeah, yeah. that's the way things are going. Yeah. Oh, oh, I can totally say that. So, I guess we never did intros, so I can tell you who I am and what I do, right? Yeah, um, who are you? So, who am I talking to? <laughs> Hi, my name is Chris. It's Chris Stanley. I'm a 
21st century teacher in Fraser Public Schools. Basically, that's like an instructional coach. And I work with staff and students and integrating technology into their lessons. And so it's pretty exciting because I get to go in and out of classrooms and I get to work with staff members and, you know, really see how they can use technology to enhance student learning, right? So that being said, our district, all of our students have iPads, all of our staff has iPads, and we all have MacBooks, and we have Apple TV in every single classroom. So whether I'm in the chemistry class, or if I'm in an English class, or even if I head on over to the elementary school, I know that Apple TV is everywhere. So I'm so used to that. And I've been doing presentations on, you know, different ways to use technology at several different conferences. And yeah, you totally become snooty because we've been spoiled, you know, because of that. It's like, what do you mean? You, I can't just airplay this. I, yeah. I don't get that, you know? So, so yeah, I mean, tech has really made us so used to certain things that we just, it's like you can't tolerate anything less anymore. I used to run what I have. I had a 40-foot HDMI cable nice. that nice. I would, uh, and I had the adapter to go into my MacBook Pro. Okay. And I would run videos just, you know, full screen on my Mac, right? And it was like not that big of a deal. I, I'd unplug it, I'd coil it up, and I'd leave the coil next to the, the TV so that I could run it and I could be wherever I was at. Right. And then I got a Chromecast for a present one year. It was before they had the mirroring out of the Chrome browser. Mm-hmm. And they've come a long way since. I mean, it's, as soon as they opened up, you know, you could mirror your screen. and made it so that it was a viable option for me. But, like, over time now that you talk about this, like, I can't be bothered to plug a uh, plug something into the side of the TV because I want to watch something. Yeah, fumble your hands around. Come on. It's a two-minute Fallon clip. Jeez. It's not worth my time and effort. I'll just watch it on the phone. Oh, my gosh. That is so true. That is so true. Like, depending on the length of the clip, too. First off, if it's super long, you don't bother showing it to people. Right. If it's super short, you know, you better just catch them by showing it off your phone real quick. Because, yeah, your airplay or your, your mirroring has to be, like, set up perfectly. Yeah. Especially for non-techie folks or, you know, they've just totally. You're yes. right, though. Like, a longer video, I'm going to link it to you because, you know. Th- yeah. And, and, Watch and it your own time. Really, that's a it's a learning design thing. Like, right. even though that's casually, like, just showing you the fact that, uh, well, what did we find yesterday in the office? We found out that never been kissed has a full free stream illegally on YouTube in 720. Okay. So oh, really, I don't I even think, know what's I in think that movie. This afternoon, you know, we'll watch Drew Barrymore. Yeah, you'll you'll get probably some... one of the Wilsons, right? Wasn't that one of the the guys? It was like Luke or Owen. Yeah, they were in every movie. But yeah, now I'm thinking in my instructional design mode, and it permeates everything that I do in real life too, right? Like right. I'm considering how a person will learn this best. And then I'm thinking about, well, are there variations on how they're going to do this and what's the appropriate way to structure them enough to lead them to water, but not enough to like hold their head under and and make them drink in a certain way. Right. So true. hundred percent. Yeah. You know, so you and I, we have different roles where you do a lot of the instructional design 
And I've taught in the hybrid environment before, which I think is, is amazing. And I've taught in the face-to-face environment before too. And that instructional design piece, knowing the environment that you're going to be in is so important. It really is. So last year when I was teaching English 11 at the time, sadly, I'm not teaching any classes right now. And it, it, it breaks my heart. It, it really does. I just, it, I, I love being in the classroom. Were you um, teaching, you were teaching the first semester of the year, right? Yeah, I taught two classes first semester. And then uh, this semester, I'm full-blown uh, uh, instructional coach right now. Right. But last year, we did an inquiry project, right? So we had our students do 1984. We, we read the book 1984, and we thought, hey, why not do an inquiry project with this? Because that book raises so many questions, you know, written in the late 40s, but still resonates even stronger, you know, as, as time keeps moving on, right? Yeah. Uh, but with that, you can't just go... And those those who don't know what an inquiry project is, basically, you know, you have your students ask a question and then they develop research based off of that question. But it would be so simple to introduce that to other teachers and go, yeah, they ask a question, then they do a research paper. But you have to, again, like you said, lead them to that water. Right. Right. So because they have to know what the right type of question is. Right. It can't just be yes or no. It should be more of a how type of question if you really want to get meat and potatoes. And so you got to model that sort of thing. And, and, you know, I mean, as teachers, we naturally do that in every single thing that we do. But if you want some type of outcome, even when the students are going to be surprising and amazing you with their own outcome, and it could be something different than what you even expected it to be you still have to lead them to that, right? So you got to ask those specific questions and you got to set up certain lessons that are going to allow them to feel free to start swimming on their own, right? Right. And with that, you have to kind of say, hey, in this one, I can do face-to-face. In this one, I can lead them to four different websites to then have a Socratic discussion based off of that. Or in this lesson, um, I'm just going to let them go off on their own. And then we can come back and have a message board and talk about the different types of questions that we can come up with based off of an article that they might have found. So it's we've got so much material now. How do we utilize all of it and in what forms and in, in what environments do we use it? It's interesting. Yeah, you know, the areas that we work in with technology and education is often a land of extreme. You've got those that are uncomfortable by it and kind of just use it peripherally. And then you've got a lot of people that kind of have the same level of effectiveness by jumping in and like going crazy about changing everything that they've ever thought of. Right. Something that is really championed in the idea of blended learning and personalization and competency-based structures because they're all interrelated is this idea over giving students greater control over pace, place, path, and time, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an important and significant place that we should be, you know, considering a lot of because that's really the crux of personalization. It's not this 
archaic learning style thing where we just give four different tasks that are very rigidly structured that are just Mm -hmm. four different options of the hoops you want to jump through, right? It's really getting down to, man, if we give students more autonomy over the when, where, and how uh, that they're doing things, gosh, that will really help them. It'll be a negotiation of what a personalized learning experience looks like. Right. But I think a danger there is acting as if absolutely everything is going to be their choice, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so much. You know, we're, we're kind of playing around with right now, you know, finding different ways to have students prove that they know something, right? And so we've been having conversations throughout the district, you know, having the same common language, which which is so important, which has been really cool. But our students now, like we, we now have conversations with the students, too. Right. And we say, well, you know, if you're this type of learner, maybe this could work for you because with technology, oh, my gosh, you can do so many different things. You know, if you are a, 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 a storyteller, then maybe you'd want to make an iMovie, right? If you are a, a, a writer, you know, then, then maybe you want to write a paper on this. Maybe you want to use a different type of project. But it's funny because I, I teach at the high school level and some of our students do catch on to that. And like we'll be talking about a certain, you know, assignment or a certain competency, which I can get into in a second. But a student looked at me one day and said, yeah, that's not how I learn. <laughs> and I thought that was so interesting that, you know, one, they, they might have just been been doing that because they might have been a little lazy at that point and they just didn't want to do the assignment at hand. <laughs> but, but I also thought it was brilliant, too, because we're having these conversations and the students are really catching on to that. Right. And, and they are taking ownership of their strengths because how you learn you credit that towards your strength. I'm a visual person. I have to see how things are done. So because of that, I have to get my hands dirty, right? Right. Because of that, you know, I, I'd be one of the first people to jump into starting something new, right? Yeah. And so I would call that a strength of mine. But it, it it's just because that's how I learn. That That's just how I am. So So I think that's interesting that as we continue to move down this path of having students try to discover their learning styles in order to complete a project, what they're doing there is they're also learning these lifelong skills of what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are too at the same point. It's interesting how you describe these differences in, as that student put, this is how I learn kind of thing. It's a much more complex understanding than what I think I was taught when I was in undergrad and doing my pre-service stuff. It's not like you can identify, like, you know, I'll use the example of the auditory visual kind of static. It's like, it's way messier than that. And there's so many more variables than that. And thinking that narrow is damaging. The content is going to be the content. You need to think in terms as a designer of an environment. And, you know, I'm talking about teachers. I'm talking about instructional designers that consult with teachers in building these environments. Mm-hmm. Geography content is an inherently visual spatial skill set. And to say that I'm going to try to cater to auditory learners, I'm going to talk about the border of Zaire and describe that to them. 
and where it's located in the world, right? Like there is some choice on the part of students demonstrating how they're learning this stuff and how they're putting things together in the way that you were talking about. Oh, what'd you say? Uh, you know, I could be doing it in a Google Doc and I, or I could be doing it in a video. Yeah, I, right. Like the right. media format that they're choosing, like in the end, they're communicating their learning. Even though it seems like drastically different, those are catering to like skill sets and where they're comfortable of communicating that knowledge. Like, right. But at the end of the day, you have to have a conversation with them like, okay, so you're comfortable with a podcast because you're comfortable with audio recording and editing and stuff like that. And, and I get that. And usually that's a good way to demonstrate stuff. But if you're, if you need to show me something, maybe consider adding a visual element to what you're trying to communicate. Right? Sure. Right. So you're right. having those individual conversations with students and really that's what, that's what the teacher student relationship looks like in a blended competency based setting where really Everything is negotiable except for those content expectations, right? Yeah, those those yeah. big questions. You, you know what, Jeff? It's funny. I remember last time we were talking, I was saying that you you have a very good way of, you know, making somebody's mumble jumble sound poetic. So even a word like negotiable, I was trying to think in my head today, like what has teaching using technology in the hybrid environment or even doing competency-based learning How's it changed my philosophy of teaching? Right. And in my head, I just basically called it like I have these moments where I just go, sure. But you did you said it's so much better where it's just it's called negotiable. And and trust me, I know what negotiable means. <laughs> you, just, you, you just said it much in a much more brilliant way than, than I was thinking. Because you know, using technology you know, understanding how students learn in certain ways, that's how my entire philosophy has really changed. And I'd even argue a huge, huge, massive percentage of people within my district that way too, where a student can come up to me and have that open conversation of going, hey, Mr. Stanley, so what you just assigned, this is my take on it. What are your thoughts? Could I just do it this way? And it's so easy for me now to just go, sure, you know? Yeah. Where, where before in how you and I went to school, it was just that whole the, the teacher gives you the ingredients and you have to make their recipe. And if it doesn't look like their recipe, you don't do well on it, right? Yeah. And so what did you really learn from it? You know, you learned how to play school, you know, in a time now where, where every single student has technology at their hands, why would I not let them try something out? I mean, they're being daring. They're doing exactly what you and I do, right? They're people that want to get their hands dirty. They know that they can understand the material. They just have to prove it in a different way. And arguably, a lot of the times, it's way better than any of the ideas that I even had, you know? So, yeah, I just have that, like, sure mentality, you know? You know what I... Sure, try it out, man. Absolutely. I don't know that we necessarily set out to do this. But I think over time, and maybe you're the same, maybe it's more serendipitous for you, but I found myself intentionally designing in like check-in points within my lessons that made me consciously think about where my students were about things. And really like what that evolved into is just forget like every little benchmark. I'm going to keep that in mind of where students are at, but let's work in the open entirely. 
I think school for me in the past was the anticipatory sets or the activation piece was always my favorite. Yes. And and the reason why that was the case is because my prior knowledge was accessed and I was able to see my thoughts getting attached to this new stuff. That's the basis of learning is where your prior knowledge is at and how you can accommodate this new stuff so that you can transfer it over to long-term memory, right? So that it's meaningful. But after that point, we got direct instruction, which was necessary. I mean, you need new content. And if anything, that's going to be the part that's fresh out the box. And it's not always the case, but a lot of times the content is the content. And sometimes you Mm -hmm. need to, once you've got that attachment and you're, you're activated, it fits in pretty well. But then it was kind of like, okay, now go forth and demonstrate your knowledge, but like work in solitude and come back and show me your finished product. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was this one draft and done thing. Like Jay-Z, one take and you're done. There's value to the brevity of that. And really it speaks to the industrial model of education where it's like, do this relatively quickly and we can have a formula of how long it's going to take. We'll just impart the wisdom. You demonstrate that you know it. That's the assessment for the piece and we're gone. Whereas like now I'm thinking the polished finished piece is great. And I'm, and I'm glad you think that that's where you're at with your mindset. But Everything, again, is negotiable. Like, Mm -hmm. just because this is the due date for whatever doesn't mean I'm not going to say, hey, this, 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 and this I noticed. Did you consider this, 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 and that? Right. Why don't you take this, take some time. These need to be corrected. Or or these need to, not necessarily corrected, but I think you should revisit this area. Because I don't quite know what I'm going for either. But I know that... This might be of interest to you. Have you considered this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so to me, what needs to be done there is you get rid of the mindless homework assignments then, right? Right. You know, I mean, there are so many times that, you know, we've had worksheets to do, or I'll even admit, you know, in the past before we really got into competency-based or anything like that, where it was like, well, uh, so I'm going to be out. The kids have this worksheet to do, and it kind of ties into what we're talking about, Right. But it's exactly that piece. It's letting the students know day one in almost that anticipatory set feel like this is the project that you guys are going to be doing this whole time, right? So so get an idea of what this is. And as we move throughout the content, right, you're going to be building the skills towards creating this project or performance task that you're going to be doing. And just a quick example of that that I brought up, English 11, and a project that they did last year was when they created their own questions and their own research. And, you know, we had a, a fair at the end of it, basically, to show the whole school, you know, like what our kids, you know, were questioning and the information that they found. What was so cool about that piece was during the fair, which was the end, right, I knew exactly what I was going to see before the students even presented their information because we've been working with each other throughout that entire project. Right. I mean, so, so I knew what, you know, these two guys were doing from day one until the very last day. And I knew where they were and I knew the survey that they created and sent it out to others. And I helped them with those questions, you know, and that's a good question, but here's how you might get a better response. And, you know, I knew, um, the the different types of, of scholarly articles that they were doing. And I knew the, um, you know, the people that they might have interviewed to conduct their own research. Um, so at the end of the day, 
as their teacher, like nothing was new to me. It, right. And I loved that, you know, I mean, because we were all in it together. And so th- th- it was one of those, those moments that just really sparks you and go, this is what it needs to be about. Um, no matter what setting you're in and you can easily do that in a face-to-face and you can easily do that in an online environment as well too. Just, we, you know, just checking in all the time. Idea of mastery and we can kind of walk into sure. the competency-based stuff. I guess two parts. Uh, explain a little bit about what you're working on and then your infatuation with the idea of mastery learning. So where we're going right now in our district, you know, in the process of is moving towards a competency-based environment. And that's basically in all grades. And I can really only speak so much for high school or secondary because, you know, that's what I dabble in most. But for those of you out there that don't know what competency-based learning is, is it's it's taking your standards, right? So let's use the common core, for example, because that's what we're following. You're taking the common core and you are matching up tons of those standards together. And within that, you are creating a competency. The competency is sort of like an umbrella over these items. So in my English class uh, last semester, we had a total of 11 competencies. And what that says is, is that students must show that they have met every single one of these competencies in order to be able to move on. And so what's really cool about that, though, is students, they've got time basically time is on their side and time is there to help them out that if say you did not really do well on competency number seven, which was, you know, a uh, research and presentation competency, say you got a six out of 10 on it, you can redo it again. But what we have to do is we have to remediate with each other, right? So you're going to sit down with me and we're going to talk about what you presented in the past, what those weaknesses were and what you need to do to improve on that. So every single one of our students has an awesome opportunity to really be able to prove what they know. And if they're not happy with the grade that they receive, they always have opportunity to be able to prove it in a different way. So that's incredible. Now, the caveat to this is, you know, we have 11 competencies in my class. Say you got 10 out of 10 on 10 of them, but you failed one of them. You didn't prove to me that you can move on to the class or onto the next class. Right. And, and so to some people, all of a sudden they're like, what are, are you kidding me? But it's like, yeah, but no, I I'm hanging my hat on these 11 competencies. I'm saying everything that we are going to be doing in my English classroom is based around these, right? Because it goes, you know, you've got your competencies, which is measured by your standards. And then every single one of your lessons, you're going down to the, ele- the lesson objective level, right? Right. And those lesson objectives, again, tie into all of those standards and competencies in there. So everything that we're doing in the classroom completely goes back to those 11 competencies. Now, I'll tell you, there was a moment, you know, with about maybe six weeks left to go in the semester. Uh, 31 kids in my class, I think 15 of them at least, had a grade of competency not met. So at that moment, it means that they were currently failing my class. And if I had not taught a competency-based class before, I'd be flipping out. I'd be going, oh my gosh, there's only six weeks to go, and and I have almost half my class is failing right now. But I was so comfortable in that chaos because the reason why most of them were doing well was it was this writing piece, right? And this was a growth model competency. So they had a 
baseline writing piece that they had to do at the beginning, and then they had to grow from that. And a lot of the students, it just didn't improve. And so to me, it was a couple of different things. It was, yeah, you, you did really well on this one, but you also did really well on the first one too. So we need to be able to sit down with each other and talk about ways that you can improve. It's a lot easier to help you know, somebody who got a six out of 10 to improve to a seven, as opposed to somebody who got an eight out of 10 you know, to improve to a nine. You know, it, it's, it's really difficult to do, but it was those moments that I, I mean, I felt like the teacher and the student were both getting so much out of it because I had to make, you know, time set aside during our seminar time, which is like study hall, you know, for the student to come into my classroom, we then have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that paper right there. And we talk about what they need to do to improve. And I think out of my 65 students, because I taught two classes, only two kids failed total. That's incredible. That, that has never really happened before. But it's because as long as you are telling these students, you got to think about it in a different way. You know, how can we approach this differently? I mean, the, the students want to pass, right? right? And, you know, a lot of times you, you got to lead them to the conversations of, you know, well, we got to remediate this. But all of a sudden, once they get it, you know, I, I mean, you're seeing more kids pass in our competency-based classrooms with upped rigor you know, than, than kids that were in my traditional grade book classroom before. And so it was just those moments where I'm like, man, this is totally working because, you know, kids are, are understanding the material. We're upping the rigor and it's all because they have more choice. And because we have that negotiable mentality now. Competency-based learning is an interesting beast. Yeah. Because it's a buzzword going on right now too. I, I, I totally acknowledge that. But... Oh, and you know what? I'm not, from our conversation last time, you know how I, I'm a little bit more reserved now because I kind of know some of the stuff you're going to say. And sure, I could be a little right. bit more cerebral yeah, yeah, about yeah. it. But right. since this is our Tenacious D tribute, the lyric here would be, I was outrageously giddy and couldn't <laughs> couldn't let Chris finish because I was shouting over top of him uh, <laughs> about how excited I was and asking you follow-up questions. It, and we were in a library, so it was just very uncomfortable. People kept telling us to shush. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think 10, 20 years ago, the conversation was about teaching a mastery. And, yeah. and, and that concept has never really left. I mean, it, the idea of students mastering content – Thinking about content being the constant and time being the variable as opposed yep. to the opposite way around, right, is something that's not outrageously new. But with a lot of this competency-based theory, it's taking that idea of mastery and saying this is going to change the structure of how we do things. It's going to change the structure of what it means to be a class, right? Mm -hmm. A course. A right. course isn't a certain period of time. A course is a collection of content that must be completed. There uh, you go. This is not a grade level. This is a collection of competencies that must be met, right? Absolutely. And Absolutely. so when you're talking about that, if you really want to completely you got to blow up the, the system, right? Mm -hmm. You can't have a, well, competencies must be met until we reach a certain point in time at which I'm going to give you an A, B, C, or D on your performance on those competencies, right? right. Like if you're going to switch and, and, and have students go to mastery, you must expect that. You must be in it for the long haul 
until that student reaches mastery. Right. You know, we've we've got to educate all of our stakeholders that you either are meeting this or you're not. I see that kind of dilemma in you a little bit because if you're familiar with these are our, our 11 competencies and that's communicated in a in an SIS, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a competency-based gradebook. Exactly. If I see that these are the 11 competencies and Johnny's got 10 of them met and he's working on the last one and there's only a couple weeks left in the semester, in my mind, you know, if I'm familiar from a, you know, a cursory understanding of what competency-based learning is as a parent or as a student or something like that, I can look at that and, and be supportive and know what needs to happen. Like what, right. where you're at in that process. Right. If I'm looking at it with a different lens, I want Johnny to get at least a B on this. What does Johnny have to do to get a B? It doesn't really work that way, right? Right, exactly. And you know what? I think systems have to be set up in place. Right now we're still, you know, I, I would love to be able to say that, you know, we have all the time in the world for our students to be able to accomplish this. But right now we still do fall under the, you know, well, the semester ends on this particular date sort of schedule. But one of the things that we really opened up at the high school level was if you were teaching, we, we run on four quarters, right? But right. if you're teaching a competency-based course, it's it's not going to run that way. You run on a semester, right? So it's, So our traditional class used to go, well, once first quarter ends, then you start over with a clean slate second quarter, and then you average those two together. And then include the final, you know, and then out pops out your grade. Which means it's not really a clean slate. No. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. But, you know, you you get your kids that, you know, might have gotten a D first quarter, you know, and then they go, well, then I really need to up my game for second quarter, yada, yada, yada. This one is just basically, you know, we're starting in September and then you have right now until January to be able to get all of this material done. And some of it we do guide them along the way, you know, like we might not get to competency five until a little bit later, but they still have cushion and they still have ample time um, to be able to get this, this done. But because of the fact that our building and now our district too, um, it truly believes in that philosophy, it's setting up your systems, right? So, so what are we putting in place knowing that, you know, this does have to end at some point, you know, what are we going to do? So, you know, we've been really good at, you know, having like after school remediations or, you know, setting up time for, you know, the teachers to meet with the students, um, you know, having that open conversation with all parents too. I mean, two years ago, I think parents in our building would be like, I, I'm still not completely sure on how competency-based works. Now they pretty much all know and they yeah. all have an understanding right? Our grade books are very uniform now. And so, like I said, that I have 11 competencies, all parents see those all the time, but they know that it's fluid too, right? So if Johnny got a seven out of 10 um, on competency four, you know, he still has time. He can totally change that grade if he so wants to. We just have to be able to have that conversation and talk with each other about what he needs to do in order to change that. So you got to have support from all structures uh, for that to really work. I think it's a great pragmatic approach, putting a competency-based approach into a traditional course model, right? 
you control a lot of the deadlines for assignments that you put into place. We tend to think about how rigid everything is and that we don't have control over it. But when you really take an inventory of what is the non-negotiable dates in time, what can you do to instill some flexibility into that in, in the meantime? What we end up finding is that once teachers kind of unpack things, that they've been in a task completion mindset and that they can have some flexibility. If, you know, if all I have to do is give a common assessment at the end of a semester, then everything else is negotiable. And I can Mm -hmm. figure out a way to retrofit this competency-based approach for progress reports and card markings and 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 things like that, right? Like mm-hmm. I can figure out a way to where I don't induce panic mode, sure. right? Or leverage it in a way that you know I do induce a little panic, <laughs> depending on what I need, right? Yeah. But it's it's a really practical way of going about it, Chris. I think that shying away from doing this before you have a top-down restructuring of a school district means you never start it. And there can be some stuff that we can do. We just have to, everything depends, right? I mean, it's just just like our conversation with personalized learning in general before. Mm -hmm. We can do this stuff. We have to have individual conversations amongst ourselves as teachers uh, and as administrators and in between the two. And then also with our students because they're going to be learning this stuff as we go along as well. And if we, I think explaining the rationale to where like, I think everyone can get on board with everyone is going to master these competencies because this is what the learning is. Everyone's going to leave here having learned what they needed to learn. That's a great rallying cry. Well, and and what's super important too is, you know, I mean, and we're in the world of standardized tests right now. You, You want to talk about accountability so I'm excited that, you know, only that small number of students, you know, only a few kids ended up failing my class. If I had more than that, that that holds me accountable as well, too, because it's like I had this entire semester, you know, to be able to to try and help every single one of these students. And if I had a large amount of students failing that class, I have to then question what I might not have been doing right either. Correct. Right. That's just a huge point. And if somebody asked me what is my favorite piece of teaching a competency-based class, I'd say two things. One of those is the remediation piece because, I mean, even though I've got a class of 31, it's that one-on-one moment, you know, that I'm having with those kids. And they have to prove to me that they are ready to try this again. You know, they're ready to attempt it again. But second, and this might be my most favorite, is the conversations I have with parents. Before, when I just, you know, had the traditional classroom and the traditional grade book, someone would call me up and say, why is Jill failing my class? And, you know, I'd quickly look at the grade book and I go, well, because, you know, they didn't turn in this assignment on, you know, September 12th. And then they didn't turn in this paper on October 15th. But, you know, we've got a big test coming up. So hopefully those points will all be padded up and hopefully they'll be able to do okay. I didn't give them an answer, though. Their question was, why isn't this student doing well? And I just said, well, because they didn't turn in their work. Right? right. I can now really say, well, let me take a look. Look, they've excelled in so many of these areas in my class, but 
this research and presentation piece, here's what I'd like to talk with you about. They got a six out of 10 on it, and here's why. It's because we have a, a rubric for every single one of our competencies, right? And I'm able to really look at that and go, well, it's because this was the, the material that they presented. I felt it was a little weak here, but not to worry. As long as we have a conversation and we remediate, they then have opportunity to get a better grade if they would like to, right? Whether yeah. they want to start all over again or whether they want to add to it because it's keeping that conversation going. Those conversations that I'm able to have with parents really lets me know that we're on track to the right thing because whether I have 30 students or whether I have 250 students overall, I can really pinpoint and say why Jill isn't doing well in Mr. Stanley's English class. That is the coolest piece. You get to talk teaching and learning. There's not this peripheral conversation of measurement, right? Right. From the very start, your lessons are geared towards big idea questions. All your conversations with students are about pursuing those questions. You got your finger on what they're thinking about. Yep. And you know exactly what – there's no more shooting in the dark uh, with with – throwing tasks at the wall and hoping that they get out of it what they need to get out of it. Right. It's just a lot of conversations around a problem that needs solving. Yeah. And, you know, you're a field guide trying to get them there. And every single interaction is customized. And they're so small once you get into the rhythm of things that, like, like all of these interactions are rewarding. Like, talking about students where they're at, because you're like me, like, Every kid is a unique puzzle. And when I'm talking about stuff that they're thinking about and they're sharing their information with me and it's all unique, I don't get bored. I get excited and, and I'm, I'm happy to be a partner in their learning. Right. I get really burnt out when I'm like looking at the same worksheet over and over and over again, looking for the same combination of words. Absolutely. And, and then when I'm done with it, all I've done is just push paper from one side of the desk to the other. Or, you know, even in a digital workflow, all I've done is gone through a folder full of Google Docs and really not looked at anything that had to do with learning itself. Right. I don't get out anything out of it. And my students aren't getting any rich feedback from me to push their thinking forward, right? Right. That's the nail on the head right there. And I think that's the reason why all of us got into teaching, right? If you do go the old way, you know, most of us we get into teaching because we love two factors. We like the teaching and learning, but sometimes we don't have time for the learning, right? So that gets pushed aside. And then hopefully you just taught it well enough. In a competency-based classroom, both of those go together, the teaching and the learning on both parts, you know, on my part, on their part. And I think that that's what's so cool about it. You know, I mean, it's just, it's more work. It definitely is. I will never be the person to say, hey, it's the same thing that you've been doing. You're just kind of restructuring your grade book. No, 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 no. I mean, it's a heck of a lot more work, especially when you're working with teenagers who, you know, it's tough to help them find that motivation a lot of times when they've got eight other classes and they've got sports and they've got dance and all these other things to focus on, right? Yeah. But it's work that's worth it. And I think every teacher would really say that if they tried it out. One last thing. We're always talking about engagement. When a student sees that you're in the trenches with them learning alongside with you, or you're in a message board contributing to the conversation as a learner. Right. I've never seen anything more engaging in online environments when that happens. 
a lot of times there's a fear of getting in those environments because you can't control. A lot of teachers feel like they're losing control by letting them free in the wild, wild west of the internet, right? But it's like when you're in there and they see you, that you care just as much because they can tell you're geeked up about what they're working on and, and wanting to help them. When it's just a partnership, I mean, you're engaged and they're engaged and it's just an awesome existence. Right. And, and isn't control a funny word too? Because you get so many teachers that are like, well, I fear that I would lose control. Because you are the person that fears that you would lose control, you're not going to. I think most of us know when we lose control, right? It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Things aren't really <laughs> happening. Like, oh, man, I haven't, I haven't checked in with my students in a while. I, I hope they're doing what I want them to do. Losing control goes back to what you were talking about before, Jeff, with those assignments. The, you know, you've got the anticipatory set. And then the students don't really work on that big project in class and they're sort of working in solitude. And then they come back and they give you this product that is nothing like you thought it would be in a very bad way. You've lost control there, you know, because you didn't help them out and guide them exactly where they need to go. So maybe we just need to redefine what control is. Yeah. Because I, I don't know, maybe I'm the type of person that I like living in chaos. I kind of, Know that with living in chaos, you have to sort of set up barriers and structures so that students will feel comfortable in that too, you know? Yeah. But there's never been a moment where just because I'm not standing up there for 65, 70 minutes straight giving a lecture on the Puritans, it doesn't mean that I've lost control by any means, you know? I mean, I I feel like the students have control, but under my guidance, and and so, I, I don't know. I, I think we just need to redefine what control means in the classroom. You know, a lot of times when I talk to teachers about losing control, it's not a sense of I want to stifle creativity. Yeah. I want to make sure they're doing everything. It's not – the important thing to do is as a person who is really into ed tech, right – is not to approach this as an issue of it's the technology. I've talked to a lot of technology intervention people that are just like, those are the people I don't waste my time working with. Right. Because they're just not going to understand. They don't get that this is a new, different way of learning. The bottom line is this is not new thoughts. You need to understand what they're saying. And a lot of time is losing control is I'm not doing anything So, like, I need to know exactly what my role is. And so when my role is fuzzy, I feel like I've lost control. I feel like I've lost control. Because I I don't know what I'm doing. And so, like, shifting from, okay, instead of doing lectures, you're going to be collecting information from the students and acting on that information. Because the second part of it is if I don't know that they're learning, like if I just put them out in this space and they're researching, doing a research project and I really haven't set parameters to where I can see that they're working in the open. Right. Like if I can't see their work, it panics me because I don't know whether they're slacking off or whether they're doing great. Right. Oh, rightly so. And I would say that that would be one of your big examples of having lost control though. If you're not able to check in that way. Really shifting your mindset from these are old fuddy-duddies that don't want to change their ways to these are real concerns. We can have them working in a Google Doc so that you can see what's going on. We can build in check marks or checkpoints where they're going to keep a blog 
and they're going to reflect weekly on what they accomplished that week. Whatever we can do to kind of make this a collaborative partnership and kind of give you an idea of where every student is at, that's the loss control part. Yeah, it's it, – I mean you, you're blowing my mind right now with that thought because it's so true. I mean it's like, okay, then what systems of support then can you set up for the people who fear the loss of control to let them know that it's okay to try this out, you know? Right. Um, I, and, and that's what's so important about it. You're right. You, you can't just call them old fuddy-duddies because they're good at their craft, right? Absolutely. And they're good at what they do. And, and a lot of the people that, that fear this loss of control is because they've found their niche and they, they feel that how they have set up their classroom has been successful for them, right? Yeah. So it's just that whole shift, that whole mindset of, you You know, first off, let's talk. Just because of the fact that you don't like using technology, you are not being pushed to the wayside by any means because you're not. You're a fantastic teacher. What systems can I set up in place to allow you to keep taking what you're doing but to push it a little bit further so that your students are going to be doing a heck of a lot of the work but you still feel comfortable knowing that they're staying on task. Right. Right. And that is so huge. I think we are missing so many opportunities, you know, to to really reach out to the people that aren't into ed tech. Right. And and that's kind of coming fewer and farther between as the years go by. But that's what I guess I really liked about the, the Michigan State School of Ed conference was because you were reaching so many different types of learners out there. Something like McCall, and I love McCall, please know. So if anybody's listening, I love McCall. But something like McCall is sometimes difficult because you're, a lot of the times you're preaching to the same people, Yeah. right? You know, I mean, like if I'm giving a, a presentation on, on how to use Google Docs, I could be talking to somebody who's a pro at, you know, um, augmented reality, you know, and so like they already know how to dabble in with it. So I would love to see like McCall have more presentations catering to that audience of just that whole idea of, of still how to have control in your classroom, but not being scared to try out these new things. Yeah. And it's, it's almost like you need both. I mean, I guess I, I struggle with, with conferences and that mindset too, Chris, I, I really do. Um, sometimes I feel like, like, wow, this is awesome with how innovative everyone's, everyone is with all this stuff and just getting inspired by, by sitting in on people's sessions. But like part of me wants to go back and work with a couple of my teachers that like, like we can really, we can really get some movement instructionally. I'm really about good teaching and learning. Right. And yeah. like that's at the core of, of who I am. And sometimes it's like, like you get looked at as there's this disconnect, like people that like just doing technology for the sake of doing it. Right. Like, yeah. like, and, and the celebrity and cheerleading aspects that come with a lot of stuff, which is so vital and so important, but no, I, I agree with you. Like, like sometimes it's just good to have a good mix of teachers as opposed to all ed techie excited all the same people, people. Right. Yeah. I mean, because dude, it's easy to move me and you, right? Like it's easy for me to get extremely pumped up with, you know, Kevin Honeycutt's presentation or Steve Dembo's presentation, because, you know, like 
you and I were going to try something out immediately. Right. Right. But it's again, I'd argue that every single person gets into the field of teaching because they love teaching and learning. Right. So how do we get more people involved to, you know, really just feel like they can take on something new, even at year 20? Yeah. You know, feeling comfortable that way. You don't want people to just go, ah, I just, I'm just going to ride out these last 10 years. You newbies try this new thing. I've seen it before. Everything is going to come back to teaching and learning. And Always. that's where our heart has to be. And then last question, did you run today? Oh, man, I don't even want to talk about it. It's like negative zero degrees outside. Here, I'll share with you. This is funny. So you ready for this? Yeah. So I was like, well, it's negative degrees outside. I still need to go for a run. And normally, if it's cold outside, I'll just use our school's gym because we've got an awesome weight room with like, you know, um, L.A. fitness type um, treadmills. So normally I do that, but it was a cold day today, so I couldn't even get into school. So I was like, I'm just going to go to one of our local places, see if I can just walk in for like 15 bucks or something. But then it started hitting me and I'm like, I'm a little cheap. I don't know if I want to spend 15 bucks just to run for, you know, 15 minutes or something. (laughs) So, uh, so I knew that my in-laws had a treadmill and I was like, I'll just drive to their house and do that. So I go over to their house and it turns out, I think, uh, that treadmill was only made for their small Irish body frames, not this huge uh, Czechoslovakian, you know, six foot three, 230 pounder. So I think I got like five minutes into a run. You know, the, the light in their basement is like flickering on and off. I'm like, okay, I'm turning this off. So, so I got five minutes of a run in, Jeff. Coming from my mom is 100% Irish ancestry. Okay. So my mom's side of the family, all, all Irish uh, yeah. descendants. The way that you describe the frailty of – or <laughs> not frailty, uh, the the slightness of the yes. Irish frame yes, is right. – uh, is so dead on. I'm thinking about my, uh, I'm thinking about my 150 pound grandfather next yeah. to me, who's who's half German, who <laughs> maybe too, not twice the size, but you know, it uh, yeah, yeah. a bit bigger though, right? Yeah, yeah big, uh, yeah, big, big people can can identify with bringing down the house, trying yeah, to exercise man. indoors. We're we're really meant to be uh, big, brooding outdoor people. And that's it. Like I can lift logs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I could do. But yeah, yeah and, my... and now I'm picturing you lifting a redwood, which is which <laughs> which is a gross exaggeration, right? <laughs> like what's the uh what's the Scottish uh what are those the Highland games? You know, with those big oh, yeah. carry them over. Yeah, that's what I tried doing in negative ten degree weather today. Well, hey, man, I appreciate having this conversation. It might even be better than the original. So maybe the tribute beats the original, but we'll always have both. For uh, sure, man. And if you want to do a tribute to the tribute to the tribute, anytime, brother. Yeah, it sounds good, man. Enjoy the rest of the cold day. Enjoy the kids, right, and uh, we'll see you soon. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to My Blend Stories. For more, visit myblend.org.